0: Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. Hi, folks, I'm so excited to bring you this week's episode. Our guest is one of my favourite authors of recent times. His name is Douglas Stewart. Douglas Stewart is a Glaswegian-American living in New York whose debut novel *Shuggy Bain won the 2020 Booker Prize and many other prestigious awards including Book of the Year and Debut of the Year at the British Book Awards and Waterstones Scottish Book of the Year. Importantly for this podcast, Douglas Stewart is a man who has had change thrust upon him from a young age and has since both embraced and pushed for change in his adult life personally and professionally. He grew up in Glasgow, in his own words he was a young queer son of a single mother struggling with addiction and poverty, and it's this upbringing that he used to write the acclaimed Shuggie Bain. He went on to study fashion at the Royal College of Art in London before moving to New York City to work for some of the biggest fashion brands in the world. He's lived in New York for over 20 years and it was there that he spent 10 years writing his debut novel Shuggy Bane. It was rejected by 44 publishers, 44! Incredible to hear that and so encouraging to all struggling writers and any struggling creators out there. Uh, it went on to win the Booker and now Douglas's second novel, the follow-up to Shuggy Bain, which is called Young Mungo, will be published this Thursday on the 14th of April. So, Young Mungo, having just read it, is a beautiful novel about the first love of two young men and the dangers of being different. It literally took over my life until I had finished it at 1.30 in the morning, blinking into the darkness, and I woke up thinking about Mungo and I will never get him or the characters around him out of my head. Douglas has a way of writing that is so immersive, uh, due a lot to his kind of granular descriptions of the worlds his characters inhabit. His knowledge of the street corners and the smells of Glasgow is deep and unwavering. And his characters always struggle against and around brutal violence and substance abuse and always with the backdrop of relentless poverty. His stories are sad and frightening and viscerally told. I have never read a book that's made me weep in the way Shuggy Bain did. Like big, ugly sobs, weeping, like the tears getting in the way of being able to read the next line. His books do that to you. When you read them, you will never, ever forget them. Douglas Stewart's own story is one of survival, perseverance and defying people's expectations. He really is a remarkable and inspiring man and it was a total honour to speak to him. Please welcome to Changes, Douglas Stewart. Oh, Douglas Stewart, hello and welcome to Changes.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for ages.
0: Me too. I feel like... Well, first of all, I'd like to apologize for giving you running commentaries of how I'm getting on reading your books, (laughs) as if you haven't had reactions before or whatever. But even Young Mungo, your most recent book, I think I must have sent you three messages (laughs) saying, I'm tense, I'm tense, I've had to clear all meetings, oh my God, it's consuming me, like... So yeah, so sorry about that. You really don't need that. My
1: apologies. <laughs> actually, I kind of love it. I've had to come to terms with making people sad or anxious. Actually, it makes me quite happy, and so it <laughs> makes me feel <laughs> makes me feel like I've done my job as a novelist if I've yeah, moved yeah, if right. I've moved someone.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. For me and your books, it's beyond moved. It's, it moved doesn't feel like a big enough word for it. Oh, the thing that I find the most with your books is just how all-consuming they are for me. Like when I read them, I don't want to leave the world that you create. Mm. And when I do, when it's finished, I feel a little bit kind of bereft. And I really think about the characters so much and care about them and wonder about them. So, young Mungo, when did you write that book and how long did it take you?
1: Yeah, so the really strange thing about Young Mongo is actually I started writing it in 2016, which was four years before Shuggy was published. Everyone thinks I've written this book since Winning the Booker, and the truth is, is I've not actually written very much since Winning the Booker, mm. but I'd been writing for a really long time. I just never knew if ever I would be a published author, and um, and my road to publication was was really difficult, but it was enough for me just to write. I, d- I don't know how you feel about that yourself, but... For mm-hmm. me, it's, you know, it's about the relationship I have with the book and with the work. And so I began, you know, Shuggy took me about 10 years to write, but he would often go up to the top corner of my desk and sit there and I wouldn't know what to do with him next or I just had needed mm-hmm. a break for him. And in about 2016, I was so ready to start something new, you know, Shuggy's such a portrait, it's quite a quite an expansive portrait of this family in Glasgow. And I wanted to write something that was very propulsive and quite tight mm. in terms mm. of a narrative. And I was dying to start Young Mungo. I knew exactly what the book was going to be before I began it.
0: And how did you know that? Where did this story come from of Young Mungo?
1: Yeah, so I suppose there's a lot of things going on in the book, but it, it centers around a, a love story between two mm. young men in 90s Glasgow in the East End, it's, which is where I grew up, in and, and one of the, the maybe the harder housing schemes in the East End. And you know I've just had was dealing with a lot of things from my own childhood and a lot of memories and and trying to make sense Mm. of a lot of things but but one of the things that was really critical to me was that feeling of loneliness I always had you know I didn't know that there was other gay guys on the housing scheme or if they would be in Glasgow Mm. you know I didn't have any of that connectivity that young queer people have today and so I was just imagining that actually there's these two young men who are living on the same sort of tenemented streets and they, mm. and they fall in love, which is a huge taboo. But then they're also on opposite sides of the sectarian divide because, you know, Glasgow feels that very keenly. Mm. I just really wanted to look at these two taboos. But, but the book is a lot about masculinity because myself have uh, always felt on the outside of it. I've, I've always been pretty terrified, actually, by masculinity because I've always felt terrible at it. You know, it's always mm. felt really performative with me. I had to always put on these, this act, really, to try and fit in with the other lads around me. And so for me, I'm always writing about that in a way, in, in one way or another. Shuggy goes through something similar. Shuggy's a very effeminate young boy. You know, yeah. Mungo, Mungo isn't an effeminate young boy, but he's being pulled into all this gang violence, and he just doesn't mm. want to be there.
0: Mm, mm. And he's pulled towards beauty all the time. There's a real tenderness to him as a boy and also has an eye for beauty as well in terms of his little patterns. And I couldn't help thinking of you as well in that, just kind of (laughs) what I imagined you would be like as a teenager.
1: Yeah, I actually did borrow a bit of that from my life. He he passes a lot of hours just by drawing these repeating patterns, you know? That's his artistic skills, but he loses himself. He's a very anxious young man. He spends a lot of time sort of chewing things and biting things because he has no way to express the state of his mental health. No one asks him how he is, how he's feeling, we just don't ask young working class men that enough. I'm fascinated by gentle masculinity, I think. I think sometimes I'm drawn to that as a bit of a through thread in all of my work, because Mm. sometimes for a man to be quite gentle and to be kind and to be tender or to be vulnerable is a very brave thing. You know, men are often Mm. trying to conceal that side of themselves. And especially if you're in a place that might be, you know, where there's big gangs of lads and it might be a little bit violent and there's a lot of reputation at stake to actually be very gentle can be can be seen as a sign of weakness
0: yeah it's subversive isn't it you know in it the is. north of england they have the phrase soft lad he's a soft lad you know as a exactly. as an insult exactly um, rather than a beautiful thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we're just coming to terms with that now as men. Yeah. But, but when I was coming up, there was no place for it. You know, it was, in, in a way, it's a form of misogyny, you know, because to be seen to be yeah. very, you know, sensitive and in tune with your feelings was seen as a sign of femininity. And that was seen as a sign of weakness. We grew up in a time where it was believed that boys were always safest and best placed around other men. And it didn't almost matter who that man was. It was just you needed that male influence in your life. So you had to go do it. And it could be old Jack that, you know, was building a shed a couple of houses away. Or, or somebody could have got a motorbike, you know, and you would have to go and sort of learn how to yeah. do that. But, but boys needed a masculine influence. And... Of course, this is also a time where we we don't talk about the trauma that happens to young boys. You know, we haven't yet reckoned with the church. We haven't reckoned with yeah. I hate to say it radio DJs. We haven't reckoned with yeah. with all these people that are doing these horrific things. And so there's so much silence around this young male experience in this time. Yeah. And so Mungo is quite alone in that, and he's and he's he's doing his best. And uh, we can't spoil it for readers, but you know, it is. I wanted to take romance, but it also has a bit of you know the social realism that I'm known for. And it's a little bit of a thriller or a horror. Mm.
0: So, this podcast is about change and you have some really amazing changes, you know, geographical, professional, that we're going to get to. But do you mind if we start with the childhood change, Douglas, and, and you can tell me about the biggest change that you went through in your childhood?
1: Yeah, definitely. We can we can start there. Yeah, I think the largest change that came from my childhood, I think, actually would be the death of my mother when when I was sixteen years old. Uh my mother suffered with alcoholism for, for much of my childhood, from my earliest memories up until she died from it, very quietly one day when I was at school. And you know, my mother, like I said, was an incredibly hardworking, resilient, resourceful, working class mum, but she'd come into life and she hadn't had the benefit of an education. She'd been in a marriage, she'd had her kids, she had a wee council house, and then everything around her seemed to collapse. And I think she lost herself in that hopelessness of the time. And that really sort of brought in the addiction. But when my mother died, when I was 16, you know, I had never envisioned a life without her. I'm the youngest of three children, but I'm much, much younger than my siblings. And so really for most of my childhood, it was just me and my mother. And I'd never envisioned, I'd never been able to picture a future where she wasn't part of my life, because we were so close. And she, her death was so unexpected to me. You know, it was actually so quiet for such a firecracker of a woman, you would have expected something much more explosive for my mother. But it was just very quiet, very unexpected. And it changed everything in my life. It, it, it changed everything. First of all, it orphans me, if you can be an orphan at 16, technically. You know, I never knew my father, but... He had died many, many years before. And so it leaves me sort of just without an anchor in the world, Um, but it also frees me from the burden of addiction. And much of my childhood had been spent actually parenting my mother or looking after her and managing her addiction and keeping her safe and, and keeping the house together. And so I'm liberated in a strange way too. And so it was this time of enormous grief for me Devastating grief that that actually, because I come from the west coast of Scotland, we never stopped to talk about. We never processed it, you know. My mum died, we had the funeral, and then, like, life had to go on. People, you know, we couldn't take time off work, nobody could stop and really engage with my feelings, and so you plough on. Which, by the way, is why I write Shuggy Bane almost 30 years later, you know. But it changed everything, and just that sort of sense of being very much alone in the world. But you know, I I hadn't didn't know what I was going to do with my life because I always thought my life was somehow going to revolve around my mother. And in fact, one of the characters yeah. in Young Mungo, he's a man in his 60s, 70s, and he's spent his life caring for his mother. We don't know what his mother was like, but, but he gave up a lot of his own chances. And that's almost the ghost of Christmas future for me. I could almost wow. have imagined that as my life, you know, yeah. uh, just as because I, I would never have left her side. And um and so everything changes, and I just suddenly find myself without a plan, uh, not knowing where I was going to go, where I was meant to be, and um, and it was wild. But you know, it, one of the things was, is coming up in Glasgow in the Thatcher years, I was just a, too young to begin work when I saw all the devastation and the employment, but I saw my uncle go through it, I saw my brother go through it, I saw all the men around me go through it. And so I realised when my mother has died that I've got to finish high school. If I do nothing else, i just got to get my education, right? I've got to, mm. I've got to get some exams and see where that takes me. And, and none of my other family had done that um, because mm. there was a lot of noble, you know, it's very noble to just go out and get a job. You turn 16, you leave school, you go get work, you know, you, you make mm. a living. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't quite encourage me into education. They couldn't tell me to stick in at it. They didn't know what was on the other side of it. But I had to do that. I just had to finish high school because I just, I saw the other thing wasn't working for them. You know, I always saw them get paid on a Friday and then be scratching for money on a Tuesday. Do you know what I mean? And that was every week. It was just so cyclical. And so I thought, I don't know what it is, but I've got to finish high school. And, and that was the change that came about with my mother's, my mother's death too. I, I was also liberated in a way to do that.
0: Yeah. And how were you in school before your mother's death? Were you a diligent pupil?
1: No, I was, I I mean, I've always been um, a bit of a chronic people pleaser, so I always try my hardest, but I was never especially bright or gifted and I didn't necessarily have a pulling in any one direction or another. It wasn't like someone would say, oh, he's an excellent English student or uh, something else. And yeah. so, and my, honestly, my education was so disrupted for a bunch of reasons. First of all, for my mother's addiction, um, there were many days I just couldn't go to school, you know, because I knew it would, something bad would happen if I left the house. And then there were other days because I was being bullied for being queer that I wouldn't go to school and yeah. I would sort of dog it or I would use my mother's, you know, her very relaxed painting uh, in order just to not go to school. Um, so I missed a lot of school and education was hard for me, but so grateful for two art teachers who I think just see that I'm a creative kid on some level and I'm looking for some direction, but they... They they give me some space at school. They allow me to access the art wing and, you know, and spend my lunch hours there and and do whatever needs to be done. And it's actually them that must see something in my my drawing that says, you should do textiles. I don't know what textiles is at 16 or 17, you know, I don't think any 16-year-old boys know what that word means. But I was so relieved that someone saw something, uh, that someone Mm. saw something in me, Annie, that and I just thought they could have said anything, you know, if they'd have said, you should be, you should build cars, you should do this. I'd have been like, great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank
0: you for telling me who, to, who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank yeah. you.
1: For te- and I would have gone, I would have done it. Um, and yeah, so that's really yeah. what took me into tech sales.
0: And what about like, because you're 16, so you're still a child. Who decided where you'd live and what you do? You said you had siblings. Were they helpful yeah. around that time or?
1: Yeah, I have I have amazing siblings, but my siblings right. have always been a, a huge emotional support. But when I decide not to go into the working world and to stay in education, they can't. Like I said, we're not a rich family. Right. They couldn't look after me, right? They couldn't look after me for forever just to see where education would go. And so, what I do is I go, I circle some things in the back of the paper, the back of the Evening Times, and I go and I find a bed set for £32 a week and I move in, I'm grieving. I'm feeling all the changes that come with teenage boys anyway. I'm feeling weird about my sexuality and I end up just with this rented room in the middle of Glasgow. And, you know, I have to work four nights a week in, it was Texas home base at the time, uh, and then all day Saturday and Sunday, but I I get to go to school. And funnily enough, those last two years at high school are the, the clearest for me. They're the most focused of my entire education, the 12 years prior or whatever however long I've been in education by that point Um, because suddenly I can focus on myself and when I'm able to focus on myself it doesn't matter that I have to work every night of the week just to go to high school you feel like you're building towards something and so it was actually quite a a strange time it was a time of like liberation for me
0: Mm. and it must have been a strange shift in how you thought about yourself having spent your entire childhood up to this point kind of devoting yourself to your mother to then having to kind of get to know yourself in a way look that's, inside for the first time
1: oh, that's right and actually even just to come to terms with my sexuality because yeah. you know I, I i hadn't told anybody i was gay i was trying desperately not to be and gay
0: and you, you knew you were gay
1: yeah i like, did yeah actually other people knew i was gay before i knew i was gay right and, and yeah. you know when i was about seven years old six or seven other lads said "Ooh, why are you like that you're you're wrong you know right and it started and it escalated, and it just, you know, once they see they've got a toehold in making you feel terrible about yourself, it, it they you know, it. it just, they pull it. They just, they, they sort of build on it. And so the bullying became pretty much daily for me. And so I was desperate not to be gay, you know, but about 13, 14, it starts to, you know, you come into a sexual awakening like we all do. And I was like, I knew then that my attraction mm-hmm. was with the other, with other boys, with men. um, And so suddenly... Like this forced independence at sixteen gives me a chance just to reckon with that, and so my head is wrecked, you know, trying to get through school, yeah. trying to hold down a job, trying to come to terms with my sexuality. It was it and your was, mother's death and my mother's death. But yeah. funnily enough, God, my what a time, what a time, my mother's death. That's the good thing about being Scottish, I think, is you can suppress emotions quite well. We yeah. we uh, we have like gold medals and just sort of like pushing it down and getting on with it.
0: So. In Young Mungo, he does meet someone who helps him understand who he is, someone that he falls in love with. Did you, were you lucky enough to, to meet someone like that or, or, or meet another gay boy and feel vindicated in how you were, if you know what I mean?
1: Actually, no, I never did. Um, right. what, something that happened that made me want to write this book is, actually, after I left high school, um, I had a lad get in touch with me maybe we were a year out of high school, and he came and he said, I just have to let you know I'm also gay. Uh, I just couldn't come out because it wasn't his time, he wasn't ready for it, he was seeing some of the abuse I was getting for it, and so he just couldn't step forward in that way. And that always stuck with me, you know, that sort of, that's profound loneliness I was feeling, but really I was never lonely, because of course there's other people around you, you know, we know this now, mm. but at the time we just didn't know it, because visibility was a, you know... I am come of age four years before there's the first tiny, tiny, small pride march in Scotland. You know, Mm. this is a time under Section 28. It's at the height of the AIDS crisis at the, you know, the beginning of the 90s. And and so it was a pretty dark time to be a a young gay youth, I think. Mm. Uh, But that, the way he reached out the years after high school, just to let me know he was also there, really stuck with me. And that's kind of the genesis for the story. But we weren't a comfort to each other in the time it was it was afterwards he said i was also here and i thought god how marvelous it's kind
0: of what if what if like you know if you'd known earlier what could have happened yeah Yeah.
1: just the friendship i think
0: yeah exactly yeah so then you go to college and you do textiles
1: (laughs) i do yeah then you
0: go to the royal college of art and can you tell me a little bit about what london felt like from glasgow and how long you spent in london
1: Yeah, I was in London for two years. Actually, right before I got to London, I went, like you said, I went to Textile College in Scotland. And I didn't realise it until recently, Annie, that I had a choice of art schools in Scotland. I could have gone to Glasgow or Dundee or Edinburgh, I think. And I actually chose one that was in the Scottish borders in this very small town uh, of only 8,000 people. And one of the reasons I was drawn to it is because it was almost a, a women's college, to be totally honest. It was 16 women to every one man. And it was perfect. It was the it was the best four years of my life because it was just safe. It was supportive. It was funny. It was it was like this really lovely hug after coming from this hyper masculine place. But when I get to London again, that's the antithesis of this very small sleepy town. You know, I've actually ended Mm -hmm. up having my coming of age be very provincial. You know, it's a really small country college, and London for me was just this huge liberation. I think it was... You know, I hadn't actually ever been out of Scotland until I was about 20, and I hadn't seen that much of the world. And so London, for me, was just incredible. And the college was great. And it was my first time really meeting people from other cultures, too. And by other cultures, I mean uh, Yorkshire (laughs) or Or Wales, you know, the art students where they come from, uh, you know, Denmark or whatever they came from. But it was was a brilliant time. I loved it. I think, you know, when I look back on my time in London, I didn't make the most of it, though, because I was actually quite a serious young man and I was so focused on survival and, and just getting and making it through that I didn't get the most out of the city that I probably should. And... And of course, I'm only in London for two years. And then before I know it, I end up in New York.
0: So this is like some sort of fucking fairy tale. You have to walk us through how this happens, how you ended up working in New York as a designer for Calvin Klein
1: yeah i mean i didn't see any of it coming you know we were all graduating it's a master's course at the royal college of art there's maybe 30 of us who are about to graduate the college is pretty well connected and so they have recruiters come from big fashion companies gucci dolce gabbana and they choose the student that they like that they want to take on board as an assistant and this goes on and and i'm not chosen and then uh about a week before i graduate the the team from calvin klein come through the come through the studio and they meet with all the remaining students. And they after they interview me, they say, how would you like to come and work in New York? And it was almost as straightforward as that. Wow. And about two months later, I found myself here. And you were 24 years old. I was 24 years old, yeah. I borrowed a suitcase from my sister. Uh, and I put everything, if it didn't fit into the suitcase, I couldn't take it. And so yeah. I literally showed up in like this, uh, you know, I don't know, like something out of, what was the the movie with the mouse? Uh, an American Tail. Oh yeah, shows yeah, yeah. The dog. Yeah, <laughs> Fivel, I think his name. Is, yeah.
0: Wow. Did you manage to have the fun that you didn't have in London in New York?
1: No, I didn't have any fun in New York for the first couple of years. Right. Fashion is so intense, um, and I think I was a little bit unprepared for New York. When you start as an assistant designer at any company, you're really the bottom of the totem pole and you're expected to do anything that is requested of you and the days were just so incredibly long we would start about eight o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't finish till at least 10 at night that was a good night and you know there was times we were there till like four in the morning you know it's quite a there's no conclusion in fashion so you never feel like you've finished your job you just keep going and keep going and keep going and so it takes about a year or two i'm terribly homesick at the beginning you know all i want to do is go back to glasgow I hadn't quite found my tribe. I hadn't really made like a big, a new sort of Mm. family of friends yet at that time. And so I just felt very, very homesick. And Mm. the thing about New York that I try to explain to people is New York doesn't care if you stay (laughs) or you go because someone else will come. And so it takes a long time to feel like you belong here, you know, that you know what you're doing, that this is your corner of the world. And, And so it took me a couple of years.
0: So you worked your way up through the ranks. Paint us a little picture of where you were in your career in 2008 when you decided to pick up a pen and, and start writing Shuggy
1: Bain. Yeah, so I've always been a knitwear designer or a knitwear specialist. And I had worked and designed the knitwear for Calvin, for Ralph. And in 2008, I was actually working for The Gap. And I was almost at the pinnacle of my career and everything was going incredibly well and I was deeply unhappy. And part of my unhappiness came from some trauma from my childhood that I hadn't ever stopped to face. But also I was doing a job, I think, that I wasn't loving. I'd always been drawn to the storytelling aspect of fashion, where you could really create this magical moment and really move people emotionally. I sat down, I'd been writing little bits and pieces, you know, there was some poems, there was some little passages, but I'd never really sat down to write anything in earnest. And in 2008, I have the compulsion just to write and... So I sit down, I don't put any expectations on myself, I don't say to myself, I don't write a sentence and then say, I'm going to write a book. I just say, I'm going to write, that's all I'm going to do. And I sat down and it just starts to pour out of me. And the big problem becomes that I don't have enough time to do it, I only have 30 minutes in the morning sometimes, sometimes four weeks go by and I can't write a sentence. Sometimes the only time I can write is on the train or on a plane, but I just stick at it and my life starts to change. It starts to be that all I want to do is write mm. and I have to almost get through the other stuff just to pay my rent and stay alive and stay in New York and keep going. And, and the first draft comes out in about a year and a half, maybe two years, and it's a monster, the first draft of Shaggy. I think it's about 1,800 pages. Because one of the things that happens when you say, I'm not going to write a book, I'm just going to write, is you just write yeah. And it becomes this huge thing.
0: When you kind of put that away and then went back to it and actually read it mm-hmm. for the first time, really read it, you know, having removed yourself from it for a little bit, how did that feel?
1: It actually felt really overwhelming um, because suddenly you've created this thing and it doesn't have a form and it doesn't necessarily, you know, there's lots of goodness in it and there's lots of good intention and there's some beautiful sentences, but but it is 1,800 pages of thoughts and stories and and other things. And so... I actually find, as a writer, that most of writing is in rewriting, really. But when you're faced with something that big that you have to whip into a shape, um, that's when I was in, started to become very intimidated. I have a long-suffering husband. He's a, he's a very good guy. And I turned to him and I said, will you read this? You know, will you do it? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, like he could say anything Then you else. come
0: out with your, your book. <laughs> it, it's
1: like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. I, like, drop it on the floor yeah. and the whole building shakes. But they're, they're these huge, I mean, the, the spines of the binders were about six inches wide, you know, they're the big legal ones. So you carry them with both hands, and God love the lad, right? I give it to him, and then about three hours later, I come back into the living room, and I'm like, are you finished? And he kind of looks at me. <laughs> but he handed it back to me. It took him about six, eight months to, to read through it, and he handed it back to me, and I didn't speak to him for seven weeks. I felt so violated. I'd asked for it, of course. Yeah. And then he'd done it and he'd done it to the best of his ability. And then I just felt, how dare you? Because like, also draw... so
0: much of it is, a, is, is your life and your innermost feelings and thoughts. So even if they're criticizing the form or the, you know, the technicalities of how you write, it's hard not to take it as a slight on everything about you.
1: Right. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. And you can't help but take it personally. And and yeah. actually then I couldn't look at the book for a couple of months because I it felt right. like, like not my own thing. But an interesting thing happened there, and it talks a lot about the silence between men. My husband and I have been together now today, twenty-five years. We've been together almost.
0: Congratulations! Thank on you your very
1: much. But when he read the book, you know, he'd been home to Glasgow. He'd met my family. He knew where I grew up. He knew the environment. But until he actually read a piece of literature where he could immerse himself in it, he had no idea about so much of it. Yeah. And so that period in our relationship as well was him really coming sort of understanding finally yeah really truly who I was um and I realized that there's no way to sometimes men don't necessarily share those deep feelings between each other right. even when we're very intimate and so the book did a lot for us in that way
0: yeah and maybe for you as well like maybe they say don't they you know you write to know yourself you know in writing it you probably learned a lot about your own life in that way
1: too no I did yeah and I, and I got to put down a lot of um to lay down a lot of my armour and a lot of my weapons, because I, I really came to term with some difficult things that had happened in my childhood, but I came to understand them. I never really understood sectarianism. Yeah. I just understood what it felt like. I came from a Protestant Catholic family. Mm. It was always part of our life. There was always divides in the family and then in the community. And when I went back and I really thought about it and I understood the immigration and Irish history, I did all the research that's necessary to write a book. Mm. I didn't like it anymore, but, you know, I came to terms with it. I could understand it, Um, and I could understand the homophobia. I could understand how we were very unkind, as I said, to working-class men, how Mm. the coal miners around us went down and did these really difficult jobs, Mm. but no one ever said to them, are you all right? Are you happy? How do you feel? Mm. Because you couldn't say that, because then they would come apart, right? No one could admit they were vulnerable or afraid or that this wasn't what they wanted to do. And a lot of hurt stemmed from that silence, and I understood the hurt because I, I suffered through a lot of it, but I never understood the silence. And when I started to understand the silence, I could really um, forgive a lot of people.
0: And Douglas, what did the, the people around you in Glasgow that you, you know, that you were still in touch with, what did they make of Shuggie Bain? And how did you feel about releasing that book with regards to them?
1: I was really nervous actually, Um, just a a weird thing about my geography, because I'm based in New York, the book published in America first, and so it was waiting, it took about six months, the the gap between publishing in America and publishing in the UK, and the wait felt endless to me, and it was really, I was nervous because it didn't matter if it had had a great New York Times review or if it had been nominated for these awards, fundamentally if the people I grew up around hated the book or felt some way about it then I would have felt like I'd failed you know and because I'd never known that I wanted the book to be published or that it ever would be published I had written it very honestly and in the best possible way pinches. yeah in the best possible way yeah. and the truth is is um it's had a phenomenal reception at home in Glasgow and in Scotland and that's been the most touching thing for me the city painted a mural to Shuggy Aww. on the side of the Barrowland Ballroom which you will know you'll know yeah. the um as a famous music venue and people say to me all the time i know an agnes i know shuggy i know eugene yeah and that's that's really powerful you know and the truth is is times were tough in glasgow in the 80s it doesn't mean to say the people were tough but we went through a collectively difficult time and you might as well just talk about that very clearly Mm. um you know without pieties or polemics
0: it's so sensory you know, reading your books when it comes to understanding Glasgow as a place. You don't sugarcoat it, but the fact that you spend so long describing Glasgow as it is, it is an act of love Mm -hmm. in a way.
1: Mm -hmm. I think so. And certainly the 10 years it took me to write the book, it was love and homesickness that kept me coming to the page. But I was aware uh, because I'd always felt so on the outside of not just literature, but books growing up working class in Glasgow. And I was aware that when you talk about working class lives, there's a part of an audience that's like, oh, I don't want to know that. I don't want to see this. You know, this isn't worthy of literature. There is, a, there is an ingrained class thing with British people that talk about things being a poverty safari or talk about, mm-hmm. um, you know, this isn't worthy of the page. And for me, I'd always known that there's such dignity in details. And to me, the characters in the book aren't working class or anything else. They're just people. They're the people I love. It's a very othering statement when people say that, right? He's written about working class characters, and I think actually they're just characters. I never say to another writer, "You've right. written about middle class characters." Yeah. It's 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 a weight. It's just a really weird language we have in literature and trying to define things. And so, I realised that so many people wouldn't get to step into Agnes and Shuggy's world, and I just wanted to make sure it was as immersive experience as possible. Mm. There's a lot of literature that comes out of de-industrialising Britain. Mm. But it usually focuses on the heterosexual male experience. Mm. And that had just not been my experience, right? First of all, I'm the son of a single mother. So my entire world was feminine. And then I'm a young queer man that grew up in it. And so, you know, Mm. just the heterosexual male experience for me was almost the enemy. And what I wanted to do was take the mothers and take this young queer boy and put them firmly in the centre. And
0: tell me, you say you touch on your own experiences and you have things you know in your head that you want to dig up and kind of excavate and and get on the page the process of doing that how does it feel for you when you write
1: yeah everyone asks me often if my if my writing is cathartic and i think it is but not because i feel like i can give away some trauma or share that trauma because i don't think you can lessen trauma by doing that it helps to talk about it and to express it but for me the catharsis comes from a point of understanding you know, I think when you go through a lot of dark things as a kid, you know what it feels like very viscerally. You understand how it feels on your body to your psyche. But in writing Shuggie especially, it forced me to go back and reckon with the times. You know, why would a mother drink herself to death? Why were men feeling this way at this period in history? And I had to go back and understand the harm we did to straight men first or to working class men first by not allowing them to be in touch with their feelings. And so almost in in coming to terms with these fictional characters and the the reasons why they get to those that point in their life i could ease my own trauma because i just understood it better rather than always just feeling like something bad had happened to you you can be like actually this is why you know this is why it was like that and one of the big things about my work is the homophobia that that focuses in it and the truth is is it's not that scotland was homophobic it's that the world was homophobic in the 80s and 90s and even good people were homophobic in a way they might not understand they were doing that but You know, there was nowhere, I think, for a young queer person like Mungo or Shuggy to turn and to find a a safe space at that time. And one of the things that publishing Shuggy Bain has taught me, Annie, is that actually it's a universal story. I think everyone thought it was a very Scottish specific, uh, Glasgow specific thing. And actually it's not, it's, you know, this could be Naples, it could be Detroit, it could be Appalachia, uh, you know, it could be any of these places.
0: Douglas, tell us about the ordeal of publishing Shogi <laughs> Bang.
1: But when Shogi was finished, I did what any unknown author does and I tried to secure an agent. That took months. When I secured an agent, she sent it out to publishers to yeah. consider if they would publish it. And she said to me, when I send this out, if we get rejected, do you want to know? And I was so naive and I'd been the only person really that had read the book for mm. 10 years. I was like, yes, please, it will make me a better writer and my god if i have any advice for a writer is don't don't ask for your rejection letters uh, before you have I an said offer. the
0: exact same thing for my book i was like yep <laughs> i want to know everything send me everything i want to be um, i want to be across it all yeah
1: it can be quite harrowing right it can yeah. be it can be a lot of feedback but it was so funny that the night that i won the booker i was sort of talking to the very first journalist who was interviewing me and i said yeah you know shuggie was rejected 20 times and my agent kind of leaned over and she said actually it was 44 <laughs> i just stopped telling you <laughs> she was like you couldn't oh my take God. it but i was like i could not take it it was difficult in the the states because there was some language people
0: yeah you don't compromise at all with that which it's it's that's, so it's so pure to the glasgow that's experience. right
1: yeah i'm not sure americans really cared about thatcherism i'm not sure they cared about the poverty and so people didn't know how to insert it into a conversation so much of what happens in publishing sure circles around a zeitgeist or, or things that we're dealing with as a society at the moment. And, and Shuggy Bane was just so far outside any conversations we were having. And yet wasn't, right? And that's the, the real irony of it, because we are talking about people sinking into the underclass, being left behind by unfeeling governments. Right. We're talking still about women living in situations of violence and deprivation. These are all things that are actually central conversations, but the publishers, I think, didn't see that. It was so funny, the, the day I had one offer, as I said, and it's such a fantastic independent publisher here in the States. And when I went in and I met with them and they said to me, you know, we would, whatever you want to do with this book, however you want wow. to edit it, we will publish it however it is. And And they made me my offer and I was sitting across the table and I just said, great, I'll think about it. And I got outside with my agent, my agent said to me, what have you got to think about? (laughs) I was like, I know, but I didn't want to be too keen. Uh, I wanted just to be a little bit cool. Um, But it's been phenomenal. And, you know, one of the things about rejection for a writer is you're looking for a champion. But you're looking for someone that's also going to believe in your work as much as you do and will help look after your work when things are tough.
0: It, It worked out that you found the right people and the right people found you.
1: That's right, yeah. And it didn't yeah. feel like that, you know, when you go through the rejection, you're not sure that's what it is, but, but it really mm. does work out in the end.
0: Mm. Um, there's a quote here from an interview that you did with Bernadine Evaristo that I'm interested in. It says, one of my biggest regrets, I think, is that growing up so poor, I almost had to elevate myself to the middle class to turn around to tell a working class story. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that, please, Douglas?
1: Yeah, that's I I really stand by that statement. You know, when I was growing up we I didn't really read a book until I was about sixteen or seventeen and they just literature just didn't feature in the community. The the boys around me weren't reading much. You know, books were seen as incredibly southern, incredibly middle class. They were also yeah. funnily enough, quite feminine, Annie. And I think boys mm. I think working class men still have a tough time coming to literature in a way. And so, you know, I just didn't know really about books. Um, And I didn't feel included in the conversation. I felt, as a northerner, that all the conversations were not aimed towards us. They were sort of talking beyond us or above our heads or or not even towards us. And and so you just get on with it. And I don't think it made us as kids any less creative or compassionate or curious about the world. It just meant books were not part of our landscape. Part of the reason why it took me 10 years to write Shuggy Bane is I was internalizing that you know, all that chip on my shoulder, I suppose you'd call it, or those false beliefs that I had. And I didn't know that anyone would ever want to publish the book or that I would be allowed into literary circles or that this would be uh, something for me. And I had to deal with that over the 10 years, you know, and that was really a lot of the conditioning from Imperial Britain that I received as a, as a young man. It is an incredibly middle-class industry. And even now, when people look at me or look at my work, they want to, like, put me squarely in a box. In a way that I think middle class writers don't have to answer for, Um, and they want to know squarely that I'm a working class writer, and I'm a queer writer, and I'm this. And it sometimes fries people's minds that I'm Scottish and American now, that I sort of straddle these two things, because it's an intersection. And the truth is, is I'm hoping it'll come up with some more interesting things for my writing. I don't think I'll always be writing Mm -hmm. about Scotland, I'm just getting started in in terms of my Mm -hmm. career. Um, but people really want to to sort of define me and know what box I'm supposed to sit in. As they do with all of us, right? You must have faced that too.
0: Totally, Mm -hmm. yeah, completely, completely. And for me, I I, I had a lot of rejections based on them just not being able to compute who I was as a public persona. Mm -hmm. They wanted something about clubbing and raving, Mm -hmm. and then they got something about, you know, a very quiet woman, mother in Belfast, and a lot of people just didn't get it. Or they did get it, but they didn't see how it fit with me. And that's another thing I wanted to ask you about, is that a lot of the feedback that you got, or so I've read, was that they loved the book, mm-hmm. but they just couldn't see how they could publish it. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is that all about? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. Like You work in the arts. Like, uh-huh. So when they say that, do they mean they couldn't see how people would buy it? Is that it? They didn't see it as a saleable book
1: yeah you know i work in fashion so let me first of all confess to my particular uh maybe what i assume is a point of view around where creativity meets market or business i I come from that world yeah you're an expert yeah well well or i you know i have an experience in it and it might not be exactly this but i think they didn't know really truly when people publish a book or release an album or a piece of clothing they want to know what shelf it sits in, how it's in conversation with the things around it. And they just didn't know quite what to do with, with Shuggy Bain. How does it get into the zeitgeist? We're a, we're a society that's fascinated as well by youth. And I'm not a young man, I'm 45. And so I mm. couldn't almost be this young debut writer that come out of nowhere. And, and so when people said that, that was actually turned out to be a great thing, right? Because you don't want anyone to take your art on board or to publish your work if they don't know what to do with it. If they don't know how to... And so that's great. So in hindsight, I'm so relieved by that. But yeah, Yeah. you know, there was lots of different rejection letters. There was ones that just said, I don't like this book. And that you admire and respect because art is Mm. subjective. If you don't like it, that's totally... I really respect that. Not every book is for you. But the ones that said, I love this book. I just don't know how to publish it. were harder to swallow. I'm so frustrated. (laughs) But it's the right answer. You know, I mean, what good is you taking something on board if you don't know what to do with it.
0: I'm curious about your feelings when it comes to belonging, because I think young Mungo is so much about a sense of belonging, or not Mm -hmm. belonging in his Mm -hmm. case, to the social circles he's in and to to the family he's in. I've left Ireland now for as long as you've left Glasgow. Mm. And I've been thinking a lot recently about home and where home is and what home is to me. Mm -hmm. And I have felt a real pull towards Ireland. Now it could be a midlife crisis, it could be COVID, it could be many things. So I'm trying to be very calm about this pull and go slow. But I'm just interested in the idea of home for the diaspora when you're away this long and suddenly the second half of your life is kind of looming in front of you. When you look at Glasgow, do you feel like you belong there? in the way that you belong in new york
1: i feel like i belong more in glasgow than i feel like i belong in new york emotionally spiritually yeah i do it's only when i'm at home in glasgow do i feel like i don't have to explain myself to anybody that they understand who i am very deeply and on a just a a very natural level whereas even in new york still i'm i can be still quite a little bit of an outlier but you, you asked about belonging i've never felt like i belonged um and and it's been that's been something that's haunted me my whole life and i think that's why it comes up Mm. in my work so much you know but it's not just about geography it's about sexuality amongst boys i never felt like i belonged it was about being poor it was about having addiction at home trying not to show that when i went into a room you know it's about being now american and scottish it's about fashion and literature it's about where i am and so i never quite being a working class writer in a middle class field i suppose I never feel like I ever get to sit squarely in the middle of a room and just feel like, oh, okay, this is the room I'm meant to be in. I always feel quite liminal and, and on the cusp of two different things. And I'm trying to be okay with that, but it's, it's, you know, it's a struggle. But for me, everything about my Glaswegian upbringing informs everything I do, even here in New York. Even when I write a short story about New York, it's told by a Glaswegian. You can't help but see it, <laughs> even if you don't use broad Scots. You can tell it, and you know, it's just my outlook, everything about me is, is based in Glasgow.
0: Can I ask you about your feelings towards your mom? Um, mm. You speak of her with such love and devotion, growing up now and kind of dealing with all the thoughts and the memories of your childhood. How do you feel about her now?
1: Yeah, that's actually a great question. No one's actually ever asked me that. I feel much more complex about her now. I think as a young man, it was just reverence and love and yeah. loss and actually after having written uh, Shuggy Bane I had to also reckon with a lot of the damage that alcohol did to my mother but also the damage that my mother then did to people around her and that just makes her you know a flawed person who I still love but it's a it's a much more realistic picture you know but mm. I think part of the curse of being a gay man sometimes is we're always trying to understand our mothers Uh and it's might just so happen that that might be my life's work is tr- is trying to know her but even with shuggy bain I didn't want to just write a story about a mother because I was aware that this woman was so much more than just my mother you know and also I was born when my mother was was she 42 she was quite an, she was an older woman for the time for the 70s she had me later in life but I was always aware that my mother had this whole life that I'd never seen you know where she was a friend and she was a daughter and she was a lover to You know, whatever man. And I've always been fascinated in trying to understand that more because I never got to have a relationship with her as adults. I never got to ask her about her life. You know, she died when I was a kid. And I would love to just know more about her as a human being and hear what she liked and what she was like at 18 and, you know, all Mm. these different things. And, And so I think my work is always trying to imagine that.
0: Douglas, um, you said that you're just beginning your work and I'm so excited for the work that you are going to bring to the world. I just think you are the best. Your your books are my favourite books um, of recent years and I thank you for them and the experience they've given me. Thank you. Douglas Stewart, what a man, what a story. And what a writer. Please go and support his writing. Young Mungo is out this Thursday. I promise you will not regret it. You can pre-order it via the link in the show notes right now. And go and read Chuggy Bane if you haven't yet as well. Next week, I am bringing you a conversation with a woman called Grace Spence Green. Grace Spence Green is a doctor in London, a working doctor. Uh, but she has a story of personal visceral change that is actually gobsmacking it's kind of hard to believe in terms of how unlikely this thing is that happened to her and how strong she is for having navigated it i'm not going to tell you any more than that i'm sorry if that's really frustratingly teasing you and not telling you what's going on but trust me you'll want to know next week grace spence green on changes a remarkable story this episode of changes was produced by louise mason through din productions thank you so much for listening see you later